0: We have some visitors here this morning uh, who uh, are here because of their, their kids. And so I want to take just a brief moment and get us up to speed. And, and the rest of us, it's, sometimes it's hard when we're studying through a book of the Bible to forget that it's a letter, it's a literal letter. It was meant to be read. In one sitting, just like if you received a letter from someone that you loved, you would sit down and read it. And so we 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 kind of it's hard to track week by week by week and remember where we were last week and what exactly Paul is building up to say. But I want us to quickly go through that again. Remember that the book of Galatians, Paul, after going around in what is today Turkey and preaching the gospel and having people who who ended up getting saved from that area, Paul. It was a hard missionary trip. There were some people who got saved, but at the same time, every city that Paul went into, he was getting beaten, he was getting run out, and he had a group of people that kind of followed him around that was trying to undermine everything that he did. And so when Paul gets back and finds out that these churches in the province of Galatia have added to the gospel, he is upset. He literally calls them fools. He says, who has bewitched you? And so he writes them this letter. And he begins and he talks about the, how the gospel is perverted and how the, the people who had come in behind him had taken the idea of Jesus alone, faith alone, grace alone, and added to that, oh, in the stuff that you do. And we talked about in here how oftentimes in the church we give the impression that that's the truth. If you were to go outside, and I've said this before, and ask your average Joe on the street, what does it take to be saved? I guarantee you that a lot of your answers would be, well, you gotta, you, you got to stop drinking, you got to stop smoking, you gotta, uh, you, know, you, you got to do good stuff. And that's on us, that's our fault, that we've given that, that, that impression. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. That takes something beautiful like the gospel and just warps it and makes a new law out of it. And so Paul presents the the gospel perverted. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there's another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel. Now Paul is going to correct their gospel, and before he can do that, he kind of lets them know, I have the right to speak into your life. And we talked about in here how you know just somebody you don't know coming up and saying, Hey, you know, everything you believe is wrong. Is not, you're not gonna get take anything from that. You're gonna say, who, who are you? And so Paul reestablishes the fact that he has the right to address them with the gospel. He uses an argument that he has with Peter as an example of how any believer can get off the track. And we talked about how it's easy for us. To, even though we believe and hold to the true gospel, to add to that. And oftentimes, one of the struggles that we'll have, we'll have this idea that if I don't do everything exactly the way I'm supposed to, then God's gonna be like, I'm done with him. And we talked about how we can't earn the love of Christ. There's nothing we can do to be good enough to get God to love us, and so that's a futile exercise. And so We've talked about how the gospel—it's what the gospel actually is—and he defined the gospel. He said in in Galatians two sixteen. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. But for, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And so Paul uses that word justified. And we took a whole Sunday and kind of unpacked that and what does that mean. And the word justified is the opposite of the word condemned. And how God, uh, that, that, that we as human beings are condemned from the beginning and that God says, not because of anything that we did, not because of anything that we are, not because we're awesome, not because we, we, we wear special clothes, not because we have a Jesus fish on the back of our car, but because of what Jesus did on the cross, God said, you are clean. You are righteous. And so Paul then walks us through what that looks like. Because it's easy for us to say that, right? It's easy for us to say, you know, well, you know, I'm just a sinner forgiven by the grace of God. And then go act like a sinner still. Just this morning, David was talking about all the people that he's worked with who on Sunday would put their church face on. And then on Monday, they acted just like the world, if not worse. And so Paul wants us to know, what does it look like to live out this faith? And what he says is, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. It's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. That what it looks like when we're actually in faith is that all the stuff the world has to offer to us doesn't mean anything. What we want is a walk that's closer to Jesus. We want more Jesus, man. I don't need this stuff of this world. So that when life does end for us, it's, it's not a bad thing. I last night about five o'clock got the text from Francis that said, Steve has gone home to be with Jesus. And my first thought wasn't, oh no, my first thought was, thank you, Lord. He's not suffering anymore. He is healed. He's not struggling to get out of a bed anymore. Now he's dancing around the throne. Thank you, Jesus. He's home. How do we get to that point? I mean, that's weird. I've actually seen t-shirts that says, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to go today. (laughs) But if we're really walking in Christ, if the thing that we're fighting for is Jesus, then death becomes just the next step. It's not that we have a death wish, it's just we want to be closer to Him. And I long for the day. When I can walk with him and I can talk with him and I can get a hug. I can fall at his feet and say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. And then last week we saw how that lifestyle is not natural. We can't do that on our own. And we could come up with all these things that we say, but the reality is, is, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we can't do it. It's not possible. And if we try to work and do it on our own, all we've done is created a new law, we just got different criteria. And so the human heart is constantly building idols, constantly churning out ways to pull us away from the gospel. Because what the gospel is saying is that I am so in love with Jesus that the rest of the stuff isn't doesn't I don't want. And so the way that I fight sin is not by trying to do the law and white knuckle my way through it. I will not sin, I will not sin, I will not sin. But by recognizing that what Jesus has offered me is better. The analogy that we used was, if I'm if I'm out grilling steaks in the backyard, I'm not going to be tempted by a Reese's cup. <laughs> now, any other time in my life, if there's a Reese's cup in my house, I'm going to eat it. And we've joked about how, you know, I, I'm not the guy that can buy a 24-pack of Reese's cups and then eat one a day. I don't even know how people do this. Those people are sick. Because I guarantee you that I'm at midnight going to be in there going, if I take this wrapper and tear it up in little bitty pieces, the kid won't see it. (laughs) And so we can't white-knuckle our way through sin. We're not going to be victorious there. The way that we're victorious is, is by realizing that Jesus is so much better than what this world has to offer. And so as Paul is telling this and he's talking about how we have to walk in the Spirit and that we have to be fulfilled with the Spirit, he comes to an analogy. Now, analogies are a hard thing. Okay, When I preach, I use analogies two different ways. Analogies are the cute little stories or the the things that we do. And there's two reasons that, that I use analogies. One is to give the audience... I'm just kind of letting you see a little bit how the sausage is made here... One is to give the audience a a mental break, okay? If we're talking about something that's really hard to understand or a concept that that maybe is new or looking at it from a different way, a lot of times I'll I'll realize from looking out in the audience and being able to read the audience a little bit, I'll realize that you guys have gotten all you can take right now. And so to allow you to just kind (sighs) of catch your breath, I'll just tell a silly story. And that way that allows the audience to kind of, mentally catch up to where you are. And so those, you don't, you don't really worry about um, the way that they tie. In fact, I am, have done this more and more on occasion. I'll get halfway into the analogy, and I love to tell a good story, so I'll be telling the story, and I forget how it connected. I'm like, now how did, what did that have to do with Jesus? I don't. Um, there's some tie in there somewhere. But that's not a really big deal, because the, the purpose of that analogy was to let it, like I said, to let everybody kind of take a, a mental break there for a second. The second purpose of analogy is to take a biblical truth and then you place it in day-to-day life so you can go, oh, I see how that goes. But one of the problems with analogies is, is in, in fancy preacher speak, which you learn at, at, at seminary, they call it a misplaced analogy, which means everybody remembers the story, but nobody remembers what the truth was. I can give you an example. Who here remembers the story about the time that I dog sat? I, I've gotten a few phone calls about that story. Okay, so that was a great story. Everybody in here remembers it. It was, to me, it was funny. To some of you, it was horrifying. Uh, to, to, to some of you, you said, if you ever tell that story again, I'm leaving the church. I mean, it was, it was, it, it's a memorable story, right? How many of you here remember what I was trying, the point I was trying to make? Wow, I suck as a speaker. Uh, that's bad. Nobody remembers it because it's a misplaced analogy. So what you try to do uh, with analogies, if you're, if you're actually spirit-led, is that you use the b- biblical analogies. So if I'm going along and I'm trying to make a point about um, how we are, are, can't fight the battle on our own. I could either tell some story from experience that I had in the Marine Corps or I could use the story of David and Goliath and say, uh, and, and say, okay, so here David walks out and he says to Goliath, Goliath says, oh, what, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And David looks at Goliath and says, today there is, you will know that there's a God in Israel. Today I'll have your head. And he takes the rock and he goes, so even if you forget how, what biblical truth that was tied to if you remember the story you remember the story and so it's really good to use biblical analogies It's a that's a smart way to do it and the Bible is actually chock full of stories that we can use in a certain way and that's exactly what Paul is doing here he's talking to the Galatians about how they have to walk in the spirit that they can't do this on their own and now he takes an analogy of Abraham. And he's going to use that to make his point. So if, you just, if you're just reading along, you're reading along about you know, how the, with the true nature of the gospel, you're reading along about um, walking in the Spirit, and then all of a sudden, bam, we're in Abraham. You go, well, what in the world is going on here? But realize that Paul is trying to make his point From the last thing he said was, now does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracle among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So is the Spirit that's doing the work in you, does he do that by getting you to do stuff, here's the list, work the list, or does he do that by you believing through faith? Then he goes to an analogy. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So Paul here is immediately shifting from, from that idea of the spirits to, to his analogy. Now, where in the world does the story of Abraham, what does it have to do with living out our, the gospel by faith? Okay, so let me ask you a question. And we all know the story of Abraham and how they had their son Isaac. Abraham and his wife were old. They were like... Uh, His wife was like 90 years old. Now, I want you to ask yourself the question, could God have allowed Sarah to get pregnant when she was 35 with Isaac? Could she have? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants to do. But if a 35-year-old woman, 28-year-old woman had a baby, is anybody going to go, well, that's just amazing? No, they're going to go, no, she got pregnant. That's what happens. I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. We don't, we don't need to, but that's, what, that's what, the way it goes. That's the way it works out. I mean, when, when Ann and I found out we were pregnant with our fifth kids, a lot of people would say, don't you know how that happens? And I'm like, yes, ha, 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 you're funny, and we would move on. But if a 90-year-old lady gets pregnant, if we were to all of a sudden find out that, that Betty Jo Whaley was pregnant, if we were to find out that Granny Eubanks was pregnant, Hey, there's some people gonna talk. There is no doubt who did that work, right? That's a God thing. 90 year old women don't get pregnant. Am am I wrong? Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know, let me think about that a minute. I mean, (laughs) 90 year old women don't get pregnant, it doesn't happen. And the Bible even goes into detail and says she's, she had passed the time when she could have babies, so there's no doubt in her mind. We go, well, you know what? Some people lived a lot longer than maybe that was just normal then. I don't, nope, Bible won't let us believe that. In fact, Isaac's name in Hebrew is Giggles, because when she found out she was going to get pregnant, her response to that was, yeah, right, sure, uh, yeah, okay, let I me mean, walk over here, I'm going to get pregnant. <laughs> That's what's going to (laughs) happen. So she laughs about it. And so Isaac's name means laughter because she didn't believe it was possible. What a perfect analogy of the fact that we can't do this Christian walk on our own. Now, once Sarah got pregnant, she had to bear the baby she had to, to go through all of that. I, I know that, I, like I said, I've had five kids. I'll come in sometimes and, and Ann would be pregnant, and especially when we had kids while she was pregnant. I would come in and the house would be a mess and I, and I would be kind of snarky about it. And she would look at me and say, I grew an arm today. What'd you do, biggin'? I mean, it, <laughs> so you're, the woman's exhausted. It's hard work growing a baby. I can't do it. So, Sarah still had to do all that stuff, right? Sarah still had to go through the pregnancy. Sarah still had to live it out. But it was God that did the work. 90-year-old women don't get pregnant. So, that's a beautiful analogy of what Paul is talking about. God's the one that has to work the miracle in you so that you can live out this Christian faith. But you can't still just do whatever you want to and say, Well, I'm just, you know, saved by sin sinner, saved by grace. Go get me another six-pack. That's not how it works. And so that's a hard thing for us to understand. The human mind kind of rebels against it. So God's doing the work, but I'm working. What's going on here? And so that idea of Sarah and Abram getting having a baby at that old age is a beautiful analogy that Paul uses. Because God preached the gospel to Abraham. It says that God told Abraham... Through you, all the nations will be blessed. And he kept that promise. God does what he said he was going to do. So, when he get Now, we're going to come back to Abram and Abraham next week. So, take that and set it aside, because Paul uh, kind of runs down a rabbit trail here for a minute. When he talks about how all the nations are to be blessed, he kind of pauses... And he shifts gears and talks about being cursed. Now, just like when I said the best way for us to understand what the word justified means is to understand what the word condemned means because we know that we're the opposite of that. And in the Bible, whenever you come to the idea of being blessed, you've got to understand what it means to be cursed for it to make any sense. I'm afraid now that after all i said, I'm going to use an analogy for that. Um, If I were to go to the doctor... And he were to sit down across me and say, Okay, Tom, uh, I need you to take this medicine. Now I'm going to tell you that this medicine is going to make you uh, miserable. It's going to make you throw up. Um, It's going to make you exhausted, tired. Your hair is going to fall out. And your teeth are even going to loosen. It's going to be really bad. But I want you to go ahead and take this. My response is going to be, I ain't taking that. No. Are you high? I'm not going to take some medicine that's supposed to help me, according to you, and it's just going to make me miserable. If the doctor came in and said, we have discovered that you have cancer, and you are going to die in six months, unless you take this medicine, and this medicine... It's going to have all kinds of side effects that you're not going to like. But if you take it, you're going to live. Then I'm going to go, give me more. Come on, line it up. I'm willing to do it because now I understand what the problem is. If the doctor doesn't explain to me that I'm sick, the cure doesn't make any sense. If the doctor doesn't explain to me that there's cancer, then I ain't about to go through chemo. And so Paul, when he talks about Abraham being blessed, he kind of stops and says, hey, before we get into blessed, we got to understand what it means to be cursed. we got to understand what the problem is before we understand what it means for all the nations to be blessed in Abraham. Okay, so in the garden, God told Adam and Eve, "All right, you can eat whatever you want to out of this garden. Except the tree that's in the middle of the garden is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in one sense, God was absolutely, completely, purely accurate. Because the moment that they ate ate of that tree, death was introduced into the world. And spiritually, they died. But they kept breathing. And since Adam and Eve are representative of all humanity and we all come from Adam and Eve, we deserve to all die in the garden, in Adam. The Bible puts it this way in the book of Romans For as by one, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men. Because all have sinned. So just. Because of one man's sin. Because of Adam's sin. Death was introduced into all the world. And the curse fell on us all. So that we all. Today. We're living on borrowed time. Every breath we take is undeserved. We deserved to die in the garden. Furthermore. Furthermore. We all keep sinning. I know this because I'm a human and I keep sinning. I keep doing it over and over and over and over again. You know, parenting will teach you a lot about spirituality. I remember very well. Uh, one day I had told you know I, as I recall it was uh, Emily and Molly that when they were little they were you know my, my kids aren't perfect like yours so they would they would argue with each other and mine and, and this sort of thing and they were arguing with each other and and so I you know while being the patient loving parent I am I walk in like oh y'all shut up this is going to stop and it's going to stop now and they're like oh I'm so sorry and then they okay, hug each other and they hug each other and that's and then, then I'm like All right no, I'm, yeah and I walk out and and and. and A few minutes later, it's you here again. It's my time, my time, yeah. But baby, and I go walking back into the room and and I'm like, what are we doing? And Emily looks at Molly and goes, sorry. (laughs) And I said, look, you can't just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again and think you're gonna say you're sorry and that's okay. And as I said the words, the conviction fell on me. Really? Because isn't that exactly how you treat your Heavenly Father? I just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again going, sorry! So we are cursed. This flesh is cursed. Every person in here is going to die. Every one of us. I know it's not a pleasant thought. It's not something we want to think about. But every one of us is going to die. Not only are we cursed physically, but if you look at Romans chapter 1, it just kind of lays out how humanity is sorry. I mean, let's just use the right word. We're just a bunch of sorry rascals. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. According to this, we are actively undermining the truth that we know in our hearts. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. You can't walk around and look at what God made and not believe there's a creator. It's not possible. You look at the heavens and you see the beauty of the stars and the way they work. If you look on a micro level, you look at the way nature fits together, even down to an atomic level with electrons and neurons and and, and weak attractions and strong attractions and, and just the way that God holds it together. There's no way you can look at it and go, Oh, that was just random. It's not possible. And the Bible is telling us here that mankind actively suppresses the truth. We make up stupid stories on purpose because we don't want to believe that there's a God because if there's a God that made everything, then He requires something of me. And like an impotent child, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. Like the little kid that bows up at their parent. No! No! I'm going to do what I want to do. And we point our finger in the face of God and say, who are you to tell me what to do? We actively suppress the truth. And in doing so, we destroy our own lives. You know, I've preached at CR and I've talked about how, isn't it weird that we do things that hurt ourselves that we know are gonna destroy our lives and yet we do it anyway. And we say we're doing it because it's fun. I mean, every drunk who's ever lived, myself included, has woke up on a Sunday morning and said, oh my gosh, I'm never drinking again. Right? How long does it take? Usually pretty quick. The dog returns to his vomit. I've seen people who sit in my office and say, well, I know my wife of seven years is, is, is there, but you know I, I, I love her, but I'm not in love with her. And there's a guy at the office, oh, he is so cute, and he really loves me. No, he doesn't. Our, I, no, he doesn't. And the person knows you can sit there and tell them over and over again, you're about to throw your life away. Stop, don't do that. Don't do that. Well, the Lord's just giving me peace about it. I'm going to go ahead and leave them. Oh gosh, no! And we do things that's actively destructive and we do it knowing it's going to destroy our lives. I've had people in that hall in the last month Stand there with tears in my eyes and say, I don't want to do these drugs anymore. I, I, heroin has got me, and my family won't return my calls. They all hate me because I've stolen from them. I've lied to them. I've got to stop this. And then call me, leave this building. And from the timing, they would have had to walk out the door and got in their car to go buy a fix. They know it's going to destroy their lives. And we look at that and go, but we do the same thing. Our sins are just easier to hide. Sin is crouching at your door and it will destroy you. We live buried under the curse of our own sin, our own flesh, our own bodies. Physically, we're going to die. Spiritually, we are dying. Emotionally, we are dying. In and of ourselves, we have no hope. Nothing we can do about it. Everywhere where I've been in the world, and God's allowed me to travel a good bit, and everywhere I've been, there are temples. People reaching out to try to find God, groping in the dark for God, and we're not gonna find him on our own. We labor under a curse the rest of the passage that I read in Romans though says just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all have sinned for if because of one man's trespass death reigned through that one man Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't become, Jesus didn't come and pay for the curse. The Bible says that he became the curse for us. Paul says here as he's making this analogy about Abraham being blessed, he talks about how cursed we are, how if we disobey one letter of the law that we've disobeyed it all. Everyone who disobeys the law is cursed. We're without hope. But then he says, the Bible dumps that curse on Jesus because God cursed every man who was hung on a tree. And so as Jesus was stretched between heaven and hell, your sin, your shame, my inability to fight, my loss was poured out on him. He took it and said, it is finished. It's done. It's complete. So why would we keep trying to earn it? We have nothing to bring to the table. That's exactly what becoming a Christian is. Being a Christian ain't got a thing to do with signing a card. It didn't have anything to do with walking an aisle or crying down here. It has to do with the radical idea that we look at God and say, I can't do it. Take this life that I have destroyed, that I have let sin eat like a cancer. Take it and it's yours. That's what being a believer is. Dying to ourselves. Why would we want to pick that back up? Paul is asking. Who has bewitched you, Galatians? Who has convinced you to try to add to that? Jesus has done it all. Jesus became the curse for us. And I hope you're beginning to see that in this book of Galatians we see that only through the gospel can a man be free. And he who God has set free is free indeed. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you, thank you, thank you that you died on a cross for us to set us free. Oh God, so often after we're freed, we miss the comfortable weight of our own shackles. And we put them back on. Oh God, if there's anybody in this room who has never given their life over to Jesus, God, I pray that they would do so this morning. God, if there's any Christian in this room who's putting their own handcuffs back on, God, that you would give them the strength to run to you. Lord, if there's anybody in this room that needs a church family from which to fight, God, I pray that they would join with us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to convict. Lord, we pray for your spirit to draw. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.